Section 30 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland Volume 2 From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III 1825-1894 By Shimon Duvnov Translated by Israel Friedlander This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by S.S. Kim Manikt Baisho, Portugal Chapter 28 Judeophobia Triumphant Part 1 1. Intensified Reaction The poisonous Judeophobia bacilli seem to thrive more than ever in the highest government circles of St. Petersburg. However, not only the hatred against the Jews, but also the fury of general political reaction became more rapid than ever even after the miraculous escape of the imperial family in the railroad accident near Borki on October 17, 1888. Amidst the ecclesiastic and mystic haze with which Kobe Donoschev and his associates managed to veil this episode, the conviction became deeply ingrained in the mind of the Tsar that it was the finger of God which pointed to him the way in which Russia might be saved from Western reforms and brought back into the fold of traditional Russian orthodoxy. This conviction of Alexander III led to the counter-reforms, which marked the concluding years of his reign, having for their purpose the strengthening of the police and church regime in Russia, such as the curtailment of rural and urban self-government, the increase of power of the nobility and clergy, the institution of chiefs and the multiplication of Greek Orthodox parochial schools at the expense of secular schools. The same influences also stimulated the luxurious growth of Judeophobia, which from now on assumed in the highest government circles a most malignant character. A manifestation of this frame of mind may be found in the words of the Tsar which he penned on the margin of a report submitted to him in 1890 by a high official describing the sufferings of the Jews and pleading for the necessity of stopping the policy of oppression. But we must not forget that it was the Jews who crucified our Lord and spilled his priceless blood. Representatives of the court clergy publicly preached that a Christian ought not to cultivate friendly relations with the Jew, since it was the command of the Gospel to hate the murderers of the Savior. The Ministry of the Interior, under the direction of two fanatic reactionaries, Durunov and Plev, set on foot all the inquisitorial contrivances of the police department, of which both these officials had formerly been the chiefs. Footnote. Bolke is a village in the government of Kherson. Of the 15 cars of the imperial train, only five remained intact. 58 persons were injured, 21 fatally. The members of the imperial family were saved, although their car had been completely wrecked. The following quotation from Harold Frederick, The New Exodus, page 168, at sec, is of interest in this connection. It was reported about 
that the Tsar regarded the escape alive of himself and family from the terrible railway accident at Borki as the direct and miraculous intervention of Providence. The fact was that the imperial train was being driven at the rate of 90 versts an hour over a road calculated to withstand at the utmost a speed of 35 versts. That the engineer humbly warned the Tsar of the danger and was gruffly ordered to go still faster if possible and that the miracle would have been the avoidance of calamity. End of footnote. The press was either tamed or used as tool of the government policies. The most widely read press organs of the capital, with the exception of the moderately liberal novosti, the news, which managed to survive the shipwreck of the liberal press, became either openly was secretly the official mouthpiece of the government. The Venal Novoe Vremia, which the Russian satirist Shedrin had branded as the sewer, embarked toward the end of the 80s on the noble enterprise of hunting down the Jews with a zeal which was clear evidence of a higher demand for Judeophobia in the official world. There was no accusation, however hideous, which Suburin's paper, steered simultaneously by the Holy Synod and by the police department, failed to hurl in the face of the Jews. As an organ generally reflecting the views of the government, the Novoe Vremia served at that time as a source of political information for all the dignitaries and officials. The ministers, governors, and the vast army of subordinate officials who wished to ascertain the political course at a given moment, consulted this well-informed daily, which, as far as the Jewish question was concerned, pursued but one aim, to make the life of the Jews in Russia unbearable. Apart from the Novoe Vremia, which was read by the Tsar himself, the work of Jew-baiting was also carried on with considerable zeal by the Russian weekly Grazdanin, the citizen whose editor, Count Meshersky, enjoyed not only the personal favor of Alexander III, but also a substantial government subsidy. These metropolitan organs of publicity gave the tone to the whole official and semi-official press in the provinces, and the public opinion of Russia was systematically poisoned by the venom of Judeophobia. When the Palen Commission was discharged, the Tsar, having attached himself to the opinion of the minority, the government had no difficulty in finding a new kind-hearted officials who were eager to carry the project framed by this reactionary minority into effect. The project itself, which had been elaborated in the Ministry of the Interior under the direction of Plev, the sinister chief of police, was guarded with great secrecy, as if it concerned a plan of military operations against the belligerent power. But the secret leaked out very soon. The minister had sent out copies of the project to the governors-general, soliciting their opinions, and ere long, copies of the project were circulating in London, Paris, and Vienna. In the spring of 1890, Russia and Western Europe were filled with alarming rumors 
concerning an enactment of some 40 clauses which were designed to curtail the commercial activities of the Jews, to increase the rigor of the temporary rules within the pale, and restrict the privileges conferred upon several categories of Jews outside of it, to establish medieval Jewish ghettos in St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Kiev, and similar measures. The foreign press made a terrible outcry against these contemplated new acts of barbarism. The voice of protest was particularly strong in England. The London Times assailed in violent terms the reactionary policies of Russia, and a special organ called Darkest Russia was published for this purpose by Russian political refugees in England. The Russian government denied these rumors through its diplomatic channels, though at the very same time the well-informed Novoye Vremia and Grazdanin were not barred from printing news items concerning the projected disabilities or from recommending ferocious measures against the Jews for the purpose of removing them from all branches of labor. This comedy was well understood abroad. At the end of July and in the beginning of August, interpellations were introduced in both houses of English Parliament as to whether Her Majesty's government found it possible to make diplomatic representations in defense of the persecuted Russian Jews for whom England would have to provide were they to arrive there in large masses. Premier Salisbury in the House of Lords and Ferguson the Under-Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in the House of Commons, replied that these proceedings, which, if rightly reported to us, are deeply to be regretted, concern the internal affairs of the Russian Empire and do not admit of any interference on the part of Her Majesty's government. When shortly afterwards preparations were set on foot for calling a protest meeting in London, the Russian government hastened to announce through British ambassador in St. Petersburg that no new measures against the Jews were in contemplation and the meeting was called off. Rumor had it that the Lord Mayor of London, Henry Isaacs, who was a Jew, did not approve of this meeting, over which, according to the English custom, he would have to preside. The action of the Lord Mayor may have been tactful but it was certainly not free from an admixture of timidity. 2. Continued harassing While anxiously endeavoring to appease public opinion abroad, the Russian government at home did all it could to keep the Jews in an agitated state of mind. The legal drafts and the circulars which had been sent out secretly by the central government in St. Petersburg elicited the liveliest sympathy on the part of the provincial administrators. Not satisfied with signifying to the Ministry of their approval of the contemplated disabilities, many officials of high rank began to display openly their bitter hatred of the Jews. At one and the same time, during the months of June, July, and August of 1890, the heads of various local provincial administrations published circulars calling the attention of the police to the audacious conduct of the Jews 
who, on meeting Russian officials, failed to take off their hats by way of greeting. The governor of Mogilev instructed the police of his province to impress the local Jewish population with the necessity of polite manners in the sense of more reverent attitude towards the representatives of Russian authority. In compliance with this order, the district chiefs of police compelled the rabbis to inculcate their flock in the synagogues with reverence for Russian officialdom. In Mstislavl, a town in the government of Mogilev, the president of the nobility assembled the leading members of the Jewish community and cautioned them that those Jews who would fail to comply with the governor's circular would be subjected to a public whipping by the police. The governor of Odessa, the well-known despot Zelenoy, issued a police ordinance for the purpose of curbing the impudence displayed by the Jews in places of public gathering, and particularly in the suburban trolley cars where they do not give up their seats and altogether show disrespect towards persons of advanced age or those wearing a uniform testifying to their high position. Even more brutal was the conduct of the governor-general of Vilma, Kakanov, who, despite his high rank, allowed himself, in replying to the speech of welcome of a Jewish deputation, to animadvert not only on Jewish clannishness but also on the licentiousness of the Jewish population, manifesting itself in congregating on the streets and similar grave crimes. The simultaneous occurrence of this sort of official actions in widely separated places point to a common source, probably to some secret instructions from St. Petersburg. It would seem, however, that the provincial henchmen of the central government had overreached themselves in their eagerness to carry out the behest of curbing the Jews. The pettiness of their demands, which moreover were illegal, such as the order to take off the hats before the officials or to give up the seats in the trolley cars, merely served to ridicule the representatives of Russian officialdom, giving frequent rise to tragic comic conflicts in public and to utterances of indignation in the press. The public pronouncements of these gentle chinovniks, who were anxious to train the Jewish masses in the fear of Russian bureaucracy and inculcate in them polite manners, aroused the attention both of the Russian and the foreign press. It was universally felt that these partial performances of uncouth administrators were only the manifestations of a bottomless hatred, of a morbid desire to insult and to humble the Jews, and that these administrators were capable at any moment to proceed from moralizing to more tangible forms of ill-treatment. This danger intensified the state of alarm. While making the preparations for storming the citadel of Russian Jewry, the government took good care to keep it, meanwhile, in its normal state of siege. The resourcefulness of the administration brought the technique of repression to perfection. The officials were no longer content with inventing cunning devices for expelling old Jewish residents from the villages. They now made endeavors to reduce 
even the area of the urban pale in which the Jews were huddled together, panting for breath. In 1890, the provincial authorities, acting evidently on a signal from above, began to change numerous little townlets into villages, which, as rural settlements, would be closed to the Jews. As a result, all the Jews who had settled in these localities after the issuance of the temporary rules of May 3, 1882, were now expelled, and even the older residents who were exempt from the operation of the May laws shared the same fate unless they were able, which in many cases they were not, to produce documentary evidence that they had lived there prior to 1882. Simultaneously, a new attempt was made to drive the Jews from the forbidden 51st zone along the western border of the empire, particularly in Bessarabia. These expulsions had the effect of filling the already overcrowded cities of the Pale with many more thousands of ruined people. At the same time, the life of the outlawed Jews were made unbearable in the cities outside the Pale, particularly in the large centers such as Kiev, Moscow, and St. Petersburg. The governor-general of Kiev prohibited the wives of Jewish artisans who were legally entitled to residence in the city to sell eatables in the market on the technical ground that under the law, artisans could only trade in the articles of their own manufacture, thus robbing the poor Jewish workmen of the miserable pittance which his wife was anxious to contribute by her earnest labor towards the maintenance of the family. A great political blow for the Jews was the clause in the new reactionary statute concerning the Zemstvo organizations issued on June 12, 1890, under which the Jews, though paying the local taxes, were completely barred from participating in the election of deputies to the organization of local self-government. This clause was inserted in the legal draft by the three shining lights of the political inquisition active at that time, Kobedonoschev, Drunovo, and Plev. They justified this restriction on the following grounds. The object of the new law is to transform local self-government into a state administration and to strengthen in the former the influence of the central government at the expense of the local government. Hence the Jews, being altogether an element hostile to government, are not fit to participate in the James for administration. The Council of State agreed with this bureaucratic motivation and the humiliating clause passed into law. While a large part of the Russian public and of the Russian press had succumbed to the prevailing tendencies under the high pressure of the anti-Semitic atmosphere, the progressive elements of the Russian intelligentsia were gradually aroused to a feeling of protest. Vladimir Solovyov, the Christian philosopher and the friend of the Jewish people who had familiarized himself thoroughly with its history and literature, conceived the idea of issuing a public protest against the anti-Semitic movement in the Russian press, to be signed by the most prominent Russian writers and other well-known men. 
During the months of May and June 1890, he succeeded under great difficulties to collect for his protest 66 signatures in Moscow and over 50 signatures in St. Petersburg, including those of Leo Tolstoy, Vladimir Korolenko, and other literary celebrities. Despite its mild tones, the protest which had been framed by Solovyov was barred from publication by the Russian censor. Professor Ilovaisky of Moscow, a historian of doubtful reputation but a hidebound Jew baiter, had informed the authorities of St. Petersburg of the attempt to collect signatures in Moscow for a pro-Jewish petition. As a result, all newspapers received orders from the Russian press department to refuse their columns to any collective pronouncements touching the Jewish question. Footnote. The following extracts from this meek appeal deserve to be quoted. The movement against the Jews, which is propagated by the Russian press, represents an unprecedented violation of the most fundamental demands of righteousness and humanity. We consider it our duty to recall these elementary demands to the mind of the Russian public. In all nationalities, there are bad and ill-minded persons, but there is not and cannot be any bad and ill-minded nationality, for this would abrogate the moral responsibility of the individual. It is unjust to make the Jews responsible for these phenomena in their lives, which are the result of thousands of years of persecution in Europe and of the abnormal conditions in which this people has been placed. The fact of belonging to a Semitic tribe and professing the Mosaic creed is nothing prejudicial and cannot of itself serve as a basis for an exceptional civil position of the Jews as compared with the Russian subjects of other nationalities and denominations. The recognition and application of this simple truth is important and is first of all necessary for ourselves. The increased endeavor to kindle national and religious hatred, which is so contradictory to the spirit of Christianity and suppresses the feeling of justice and humaneness, is bound to demoralize society at its very root and bring about a state of moral anarchy, particularly so in view of the decline of humanitarian ideas and the weakness of the principle of justice already noticeable in our life. For this reason, acting from the mere instinct of national self-preservation, we must emphatically condemn the anti-Semitic movement, not only as immoral in itself, but also as extremely dangerous for the future of Russia. End of footnote. Solovyov addressed an impassioned appeal to Alexander III, but received through one of the ministers the impressive advice to refrain from raising a cry on behalf of the Jews on the pain of administrative penalties. In these circumstances, the plan of a public protest had to be abandoned. Instead, the following device was resorted to as a makeshift. Solovyov's teacher of Jewish literature, F. Getz, was publishing an apology of Judaism under the title of A Word from the Prisoner at the Bar. Solovyov wrote a preface to this little volume 
and turned over to its author for publication the letters of Tolstoy and Korolenko in the defense of the Jews. No sooner had the book left the press than it was confiscated by the censor, and in spite of all petitions, the entire edition of this innocent apology was thrown into the flames. In this way, the Russian government succeeded in shutting the mouth of a few defenders of Judaism while according unrestricted liberty of speech to its ferocious assailants. End of section 30